0: Who run the Who run Who 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 run the world?
1: We girls. Do. Thank oh. you, Olga. Oh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Ashley's totally listened to Beyonce before.
2: Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast. It sounds so weird without new, a a podcast, Just from, a from, the, podcast. <laughs> from the from <laughs> the underwhelmingly young, modestly hip, and unassumingly lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys, and Zach Davis.
0: A, a happiest of Wednesday to you, and a happiest of Fridays mm-hmm. to our listeners, <laughs> or wow. whatever day you happen to be consuming wow. okay. this podcast.
2: <laughs> okay, how you guys doing? Great. Pretty good. Yeah, pretty yeah, good. Sure. Yeah, it's pretty it's high-spirited good. Spirited Wednesday.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a busy time in America. Is, we yeah. just uh, released this new study on women in the church, and it's a big deal.
2: It's, it's a very big deal. deal. Yeah. It's the first ever comprehensive survey of U.S. Catholic. Women. You would think that this like very important part of the church, you know, The church would want to know what they are thinking. But before, we just kind of spoke in generalizations like Catholic women think this, but we didn't really know what Catholic women think. Mm -hmm. And now we do.
0: And they've been asked in like survey, like women have been pulled out of general surveys, Mm -hmm. but there's never been a whole comprehensive one on
2: women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we cover things from like how often they go to mass Mm -hmm. to their political leanings um, and everything in between.
0: And we should say that like we, it, it was not. Editors at America that just like we're calling people uh, unscientifically and asking, (laughs) like, are you a Catholic woman? What do you think about this?" No, we. You mean
2: our Jesuitical polls aren't (laughs) scientifically valid? The margin
0: of error is too high, I think, to pass uh, high school statistics class. But um, we worked with a professional firm, correct?
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, we worked with Georgetown University's Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate. Um, It's a very well-respected. uh, survey group. Uh, and so it was an online survey, went out to a representative sample. So it passes all the bars for what you want when you're looking for uh, statistically significant results. Yeah. So who are we going to be talking yeah, to Yeah, so about this
1: study this? actually just came out in our January 22nd issue, which is our Women in the Life of the Church. So we're going to be talking to Carrie Weber, who kind of spearheaded this entire issue and was very much involved in the survey. And she wrote a feature article in this issue. So we're going to be talking to her about some of the most surprising findings in the survey um, and about what it means to be a role model for Catholic women and what it means to be a Catholic woman in the church in 2018. So yes, yes we should mention that she is an executive editor yes, here Yes, she at is America. an executive editor editor, and I, I, I th- I'm going to say a role model for me, like yeah. very much A boss for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Definitely much what I envision Catholic female journalists to be. Yeah. So.
0: so Carrie has come all the way down the hall to join us live in studio. <laughs>
2: yeah. Very exciting.
0: And I'm really excited about this week's drink. It is an <laughs> <laughs> elderflower thistle.
2: <laughs> why do you have to oh say God, it like why? that,
1: Zach? It sounds
0: like it is from Lord of the Rings. Um, but it's not. It's from... Saint Germain and Jameson. So funny story about this. So yeah. this recipe actually calls for Saint Germain and Scotch. And Ashley was sent out to uh I had one job. Ashley was sent out to get the scotch and she came back with a bottle of Irish whiskey.
2: Oh, Ashley.
1: And Ashley's
0: like, that's not scotch. And I said, No. Believe it or not, scotch is not like a misnomer or a, a trick question. It's just
2: You know, I thought it was like scotch tape. Scotch. <laughs> So, guys, because so I'm th- from Scotland, is what you're telling yeah.
1: me. Yes. Not Not Irish. But, not but your
0: mistake has led to a great new Yeah, this
1: is delicious. It's yeah. delicious. Can you guys still. describe it to me? Because I'm still not yeah. drinking, so I need to live through you
2: guys, um, through your descriptions right now.
0: Um, it's like if you added a bunch of flowery sugar to some Jameson.
2: Yeah. Or mm. if you were like me and you ate those little purple flowers <laughs> that grew in like your lawn. Tastes like that. Okay. <laughs> you guys both gave
1: me <laughs> very... <laughs>
0: Normal thing to say, Actually, very- Thank you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, all so right. cheers. cheers. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Um, first, because this is dropping on Friday, we just want to give a quick shout out to all those who are at the forty fifth annual March for Life. They are there are thousands of young people gathered in Washington um to uh, mark the anniversary of Roe versus Wade and protest the um, existence of legal abortion in this country. So, and they
0: do it in the bitter cold. They do. So mm-hmm. I hope you brought hand warmers, yeah.
2: marchers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but next. Uh, Pope Francis is on one of his great foreign trips where he always makes news both either on the way there, or on the way back. He gives his papal press conferences. And this year on Monday, he was asked um, about his thoughts on nuclear war. And he said rather bluntly, I am truly afraid of nuclear war. All it would take is is an accident. Um, so I don't know. I think of Pope Francis is kind of unflappable,
0: mm-hmm. I know, generally be, yeah.
1: hopeful about yeah. the world, so and to, to kind of, of fact- hear him say, like, yeah, I'm terrified of this, it's like, okay, this just makes me even more afraid. I'm kind of like, idea. you're not
0: supposed to tell us that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Pope Francis, I look to you for, like, strength. If something
0: bad's about to happen, your parents aren't supposed to tell you about it. <laughs> like, you're, you put on a brave face and just, you know, carry on.
2: Yeah. So, but he's doing this, you know, he... He has talked about nuclear weapons a lot, and the reason he's, you know, expressing his fear is in the hope that it will lead to nuclear disarmament. He has called the mere possession of nuclear arms immoral. Um, so he's breaking with past popes who were okay with the idea of deterrence and he's saying no we need to get rid of them because an accident could lead to millions of people dying Mm -hmm. and his response to this question came in the context of Hawaii where
0: yeah speaking of accidents and (laughs) such an accident
1: you know could have led to something really terrible right right yeah this past Saturday um, an emergency management employee actually set off fear all across hawaii and hawaii residents suffered for 38 minutes they thought that there was going to be a, a missile headed their way um and it took a whole 38 minutes for the error to be fixed um it
0: was so it was sent out on is a push notification yeah it was phone. sent
1: out as a push notification and the exact notification said ballistic missile threat inbound to hawaii seek immediate shelter this is not a drill so for 38 minutes hawaii residents thought that their lives were essentially going to end. Um, and we've got Christopher Milano, a pastoral administrator at the Newman center in Honolulu. He wrote a reflection for us about what those 38 minutes were like for him. Um, and what I found really interesting about this was, I got the New York Times alert, and I was kind of like, "Oh, the error has been fixed. Let's move on."
0: I was not like that. I was like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> "I'm see because I'm because I'm in my New York bubble, and I'm so far removed from the reality They're of this." They're coming here next, <laughs> but you say like this, this is like Pope Francis is saying, this yeah. is very much a, a reality and a fear yeah. for Hawaii residents. So Christopher Milano, he was on a confirmation retreat with his students, and he was just mentioning how. His these kids were so terrified yeah. and calling their parents, and I just want to read what he said. there we stood around, took a few deep breaths, centered ourselves, and surrendered everything to God. We prayed, we embraced, and we waited together, wow, yeah,
2: that's that Awful. would just be horrifying, yeah. I can't. Like I, I can't
1: imagine without and these are like these are kids not yeah, even adults. And being the, ad, but mm-hmm. being the
2: adult that feels
1: responsible
2: yeah, for all these because he mentions in, in the moment, piece he's like
1: we can't they were turning to us for answers that yeah, we just could not provide yeah. we couldn't tell them like this don't worry about this this is yeah. not something to be concerned with you know but yeah. there's
0: like a great spiritual lesson out of this mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i guess um <laughs> Like, whoever, like, you might have been thinking about in that moment, the things you want to say, the things Mm -hmm. you want to do. I mean, The things
2: you might regret. Yeah.
0: Jesus says, you you know not the hour, right? And Mm -hmm. so, you have to, we should, as Christians, be living like that all the time. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Which is um, not to say I want to get a false notification that New York is about to.
0: Yeah. The the best way to, you know, make people act like it's not a drill is to tell them it's not, I suppose. (laughs)
2: All right, what's next, Zach?
0: So our next story comes from this new survey that America put out in conjunction with the CARA. And we figured we'd bring this stat up uh, because I don't think we're going to talk about it as much in the interview. Mm -hmm. But it said that Catholic women might actually be part of the Democratic wave that is coming in 2018, Mm -hmm. that people are predicting is coming. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, Overall in the survey, uh, it found that 59% of Catholic women are Democrats or lean Democratic, whereas 38% are Republican or lean Republican.
2: Yeah, no, there are some really... Interesting stats about uh, the political leanings of Catholic women. So, like, as you would imagine, um, Republicans care more about uh, abortion as an issue and uh, Democrats care more about the environment. But there was this broad base of support for, like, what we would consider the consistent ethic of life kind of mm-hmm. issues. Um, so most Uh, Republican Catholic women care about the environment and a significant, I think it's like 40% of Catholic Democratic women um, say that church teaching on abortion influences how they Mm -hmm. uh, think about voting. So, I mean, yes, we're in like a very polarized time and we can talk about like the Democratic uh, wave coming against Trump, but it does seem like this data points to this like large portion of Catholic women who don't fit very comfortably in either camp. Which I think, but uh, it's something we've talked about before about mm-hmm. feeling kind of politically homeless.
1: Yeah, yeah, we we talked about that with with Kirsten in our Kirsten Powers interview. the sort of like you were saying, Ashley, women, Catholic women, don't really feel like they're too Republican or they're too Democrat. I, and I think it also ties into what Pope Francis has told us: like we're supposed to think about not party affiliation, but what it means to be Christian and what it means to like bring Catholic social teaching into our politics. You know,
0: mm-hmm. and there is a a, a racial dimension here, too, um, that sort of doesn't get brought out in the survey because Hispanic Catholics are more likely to lean Mm -hmm. Democratic Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. white Catholics are more likely to lean
3: Republican.
1: Yeah. And I think one one interesting fact that the um, this piece also pointed out, too, was that the midterm elections are kind of going to reflect what we've seen in a lot of recent statewide elections, where we've seen a large portion of women, especially black women, that are sort of setting this trend. And it seems like Catholic women are going to follow in that same like in that same path, you know?
0: Mm hmm.
2: Yeah. And we have seen that Mm -hmm. women are decisive in uh, elections. Yeah. And so I think that's one reason that America decided to do this survey Mm -hmm. is because, you know, if we are so decisive, Olga, (laughs) maybe maybe people would want to know what we actually think. So what's next, Ashley? Um, so I watched a football game on Sunday, <laughs> Wow! <laughs> and I got really into it. It was the Vikings versus the Saints, and the Vikings, against all odds, pulled off a win in the last seconds. They were down. They had a 17-0 lead in the third quarter, lost it, were down in the fourth quarter, seconds to go, uh, uh, threw a 61-foot pass and caught it, and it was great. Um, So I was hoping I could, you know, talk about this and find a Catholic angle. And I did. Yes, (laughs) Zach's Zach's favorite. (laughs) So it turns out we've all heard the expression, the Hail Mary pass. Mm -hmm. um, And that came from a crushing loss that the Vikings suffered uh, in 1975. 1975. Yeah. So they were in the playoffs, lost to the... Dallas Cowboys. Dallas Cowboys. Um, when their when their quarterback, a Catholic, uh, something
0: stop stop Roger Staubach. All, right. So All Roger- right, Fine, you just go. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm really giving you your space. Go back. <laughs> uh, so 1975, the <laughs> NFC divisional playoff game. Um, Roger Staubach threw a 50 yard bomb to Drew Pearson at. This time it was expiring, there's like 30 seconds left. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, this Sunday's
2: yeah, pass was more, more dramatic, miraculous. yeah.
0: Um, but that is where the phrase Hail Mary comes from because he, he, he Roger says he claims he he just said one right before. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: the best part of this article though,
0: <laughs> yeah, so, uh, Roger is hoping that he's no longer going to be hated in Minnesota because now it's been uh, this They've, play has yeah, maybe eased rejection. the wounds. Um, but he said, uh <laughs> are there any prayers left uh, when he they asked like what could they call this play they could call Diggs's catch the apostles creed or something which is like <laughs> oh my god easily the worst name for a play i've ever heard um but i do have i did some reporting <laughs> yeah last night actually um so i was in baltimore and i found some minnesotans who were at the game oh, um, okay. Alan wow. connick who's a fan of the show uh uh, was at on the fifty yard line oh for gosh. this pass. And so I asked her what would what would she name this miraculous play? Mm-hmm. And out of out of uh, respect for alliteration, she opted uh, Diggs, the guy who caught the ball, mm-hmm. Diggs's divine mercy because nice. it ended the suffering of the Minnesota Vikings fans. I Very
2: like good. that. I like that.
0: <laughs> Great.
2: All right, what's next,
1: Olga? So Bishop Philip Egan of Portsmouth, England, recently made headlines. He believes he stated that Catholic churches should stay open all day. He was visiting parishes and was surprised to find that doors were locked. So now he's kind of saying that it's hypocritical. Churches should be open all the time, uh, which I think is fascinating. I was have never really ventured into seeing what church hours are, but I looked into like the parish I grew up with and was surprised to find that they're closed. Like. Two three days a week, and I'm just thinking,
2: shouldn't they be open? What do you guys think? Yeah, no, I've had the experience of want you know stopping by a church, wanting to just go in and pray, and being like, why is this locked? Mm-hmm. It's like five o'clock on the in in the right, afternoon. Right. Like,
0: no, I'm I go pretty hard on the leave them open all the time. Uh, end of the camp. I think and the so this bishop, and, yeah. he
2: contrasted it with the Church of England, which apparently they do advise their, their bishops to have a policy mm-hmm. of open doors. Um, and he thought that the Catholic Church should adopt a similar policy.
0: I think there are going to be adults in the room in a lot of rooms who are going to talk about all the practical reasons why we couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I think they're wrong. You know, the church asks us to be fools for Christ, to do things that seem silly and impractical. And this is like, it's a fundamental thing, right? Like, I think I think of after 9-11, um, a lot of pastors talked about how they immediately went and opened the, the church doors because that was such a traumatic mm-hmm. event in the mm-hmm. lives of everyone. But people go through trauma all the, like, you never know when that's going to happen. And right. if someone wants to turn to the church, wants to talk to God, um, and they get there and the door's locked, like, mm-hmm. that makes such an impression It yeah. so, lasts.
1: So are you saying churches should be open 24-7, 365 days a year? Absolutely. Huh. What what do you think, Ashley?
2: Um, I mean, I think I'd probably stake out the middle ground. I know you're shocked. (laughs) Moderate (laughs) that I am. Um, But, you know. The adult
0: in the room you are.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I think hours that you are generally would, you know, an average person would expect to be able to go to a church and find it open. So, you know, maybe like six to 10 or something Mm -hmm. um because i think like some things we need to take into consideration is that um you know there are you know just like practically speaking like women who are probably gonna be women or men but probably women cleaning these churches after hours Mm -hmm. and do they feel Mm -hmm. safe doing that if the door is open and they're you know in an unsafe neighborhood or you're maybe you're You know, insurance premiums will go up and are those resources better used in your social ministries that are directly serving uh, people experiencing homelessness? So there is like a balance that I think you can strike um, of being a place of welcome for people, but taking into consideration the broken world we live in and that, you know, you're risking people getting hurt, property getting hurt, money being lost that could be used in a better
0: way. Yeah, but I really think Jesus asks us to take those risks. I, I, I think of, I don't know, this is cheesy, but the scene from Les Mis where Jean Valjean gets, you know, led into this uh this guy's home and Jean... Steals from this dude after he feeds him and gives him a place to stay, gets caught, gets brought back to the dude, and the police are like, This man stole from you. And he goes, Oh, no, no, no. He's an honored guest and he forgot this, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the type of thing we're called to do. And like just
2: I think this was all a pl- ploy for you to get to sing laymen. I won't. I will keep people.
0: Oh, there's so many. Two, four, six, oh, one. There
1: we go. Um, there
2: we go.
0: I had a very serious point to make, and I was baited. into singing yeah
1: it's it's not your fault
0: the church of england (laughs) recommends that uh churches keep their doors open because churches are actually more likely to be attacked when they're locked because uh you know if criminals probably feel like if someone's going to walk in they're not going to do it but if it's if it's locked and it's closed no one's expecting a criminal to show up but theologically we require that a sanctuary lamp be lit all the time anywhere there's a tabernacle and I don't know what the point is of having a, a sanctuary lamp lit all the time if people can't sit in the presence of God at any time.
2: Because Jesus needs a night lamp.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, but also, I don't know. You said like not uh, church hours you were to, you would expect. So like at, mm-hmm. like before ten p.m. But like nothing good happens after midnight. And who do you need when? Nothing good is happening.
2: Lots of good things happen. Jesus. That's true.
0: All right. But maybe, maybe listeners, you're in charge of a church. Maybe you're the one that locks the doors and you have strong feelings about this, I'm imagining. Uh, or maybe you've gone to a church and it's been locked. Uh, what do you think about this? Write us at Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org.
3: She turns her head to face the sun, but sees the moon still shining. My angel, where have you gone to? And sunshine,
1: why'd you go away? And now we are excited to welcome one of America's executive editors, Carrie Weber. Welcome to Jesuitical, Carrie. Thank
3: you. I'm really excited to
2: be here. <laughs> really excited too. So you were. Uh, Kind of integral to this new study that America Media put out this week. Can you tell us its origin story?
3: (laughs) Sure. So in 2013, we did an issue that was edited and written by women. And I have a question about that actually. So
0: did that mean (laughs) I'm going to interrupt you? Uh
3: huh. Just fresh out the gate. Okay. Here comes. (laughs) This is great for women's voices. Go on, Zach. (laughs) Um, So did that mean like
0: I wasn't here at America Uh at that time. So did that mean like the male editors were just. Not working that week.
3: Yo, everyone else got the week off. No. That's what. I, no, okay. <laughs> no. All right. It's just me and just the three it was of us. Actually, a lot of a lot of us. Uh, I mean, I think you know other people contributed, like in the copy and the in the proofreading, the general magazine it. roles. Oh, okay. Most of the, uh, all the writing and most of like the first edits, the big substantial edits, were done by the female staff writers Got it. Okay. Sorry, please continue. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) So in that issue, we made a promise to continue the commitment to women's voices in the church, right? That it's not like, oh, every five years we're going to let ladies talk. So we did that. And as part of that, uh, I was writing an editorial one day about women in the church. um, And I started to write like, oh, Catholic women think... X. And I realized, I was like, I think that's just what I think Catholic women think. And not, I don't know if there's anything actually, statistically speaking, that will back this up. So I called uh, Mark Gray, who is one of the researchers over at CARA, the Center for Applied Research in the Apostolate at Georgetown University, who does this sort of thing for Mm -hmm. a living and said, do these stats exist? And he said, no. And then I went to Father Matt Malone, our editor in chief, and I said, can we make them exist? And he said, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. And then here we are. There we go. So what what findings have surprised you the most, Carrie? I mean, I think one of the things that just really struck me overall was the contrast between the number of women who are sort of engaged on a, you know, regular basis in their parish, which turns out to be relatively low, even, mm-hmm. you know, with ma- only 24% of women went to mass weekly or more, you know, which is a very low number for something that's supposed to be... Uh, where we receive the Eucharist and the source and summit of our faith, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but 82% of Catholic women had never considered even leaving the church, which I find uh, just a fascinating contrast because it means there's something that is keeping women connected to the faith, whether that's history or tradition or family or rituals uh, or a sense of personal spirituality. That means when some random polling company calls you up, you will still—well, actually, it was an Internet-based poll, (laughs) (laughs) because they are more honest that way, actually. You know, when you do uh, have to answer these questions for a stranger, you're going to say, yeah, I'm Catholic, and Mm -hmm. that's how I identify, even if in the day-to-day basis you're not necessarily participating in the way that the church sort of hopes you might— but it doesn't mean that you're not Catholic and it doesn't mean that you can't eventually participate more or that there aren't other ways you might be engaging mm-hmm. with your faith that are meaningful and that are contributing to a faith community.
2: What would you say to those who might look at this study and say, um, you know, if you're not going to Mass, you know, regularly and going to confession and having a Catholic
3: wedding, then you're not a real Catholic.
0: Which, sadly, is not a hypothetical. Yeah. Exactly
3: <laughs> I'm looking, on, been social been looking media, on social media lately. Yeah. Uh, I think when any time we get into categorizing people as real Catholics or not real Catholics, we get into a very dangerous zone of trying to be the, the final judge of someone's soul, and that's not our job at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that... Our role is to try to be a community and be that body of Christ to each other and to encourage each other to uh, become more integrally connected to that community, uh, but to understand that at times people have been caused real pain by this community, mm-hmm. by our community of faith, that, that people have reason that they might not feel as connected to the church or to God now uh, as they might in the future or they might have in the past. And to meet people where they are and to walk with them in that path and hopefully a path that sort of leads back to this community that can be more fruitful and more healing for them.
2: Yeah, it all—it strikes me as so strange that people who consider themselves real Catholics and so presumably like believe in baptism and in the indelible like mark it leaves on someone's soul <laughs> right. would like you know then just discard that because
3: that thing I, you can't. I, here's the thing: like you don't get to opt, once you're baptized, you don't get to opt out, right? You're you're yeah. a Catholic. The church considers you Catholic because you have been baptized. You yeah. may not have received all the sacraments to fully mm-hmm. integrate you into the church as an adult and fully initiate you through confirmation, etc. But you're Catholic and you're on that path and you might be at a different point than somebody else, but you're still there and you're still welcome back and you're still a child of God and loved just as much as anybody else, Catholic or not. Yeah, I
2: dusted off my uh, catechism when I was preparing to, like, respond to people.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's usual rituals before they go on Twitter. (laughs) Um,
2: But no, and I was looking at the baptism part of it, and it was like, there's a line, the whole ecclesial community bears some responsibility for the development and safeguarding of the grace given at baptism. So it's literally the church's job to save. there's grace there and it's there whether they are going to mass every week or not. And the role of the church is to, you know, try to cooperate with that grace, not to Mm
0: -hmm.
3: call them fake Catholics. Help people to recognize it and where it is active and in the world in really wonderful and beautiful ways.
0: So something you mentioned was that, you know, not going to mass is not ideal, right? Because this is where we receive the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. But another finding in the study was that Receiving the Eucharist along with helping the poor was one of the things that these women said defined their sense of Catholicism. Why do you think that is?
3: Uh, it's, well, I think hopefully it means that some element of our Catholic culture has stuck in, right? Mm-hmm. Like out of whatever, whether you've gone to Catholic school or you've been raised in a Catholic family or you knew a bunch of nuns at some point in your life, you've understood that at the core of our faith is the Eucharist and loving our neighbor as ourselves, right? And that's what those two things are. And that's what each of those things sort of feed into, right? If we come for the Eucharist, that we are then sent forth from mass to go and serve others, and if we serve others, we're hopefully brought back into that community of the Eucharist to the body of Christ in each other and at uh, on the altar at mass that helps us to be better people, better Catholics, and better community. Hmm.
2: How do you think the parish community can like harness these findings, especially um, you know the finding that people really identify with helping the poor is that is that an opportunity to re-engage people so that they do come back to the sacraments yeah i mean i think
3: a lot of people are willing to engage in acts of service um because they seem to be a little bit less intimidating than inviting somebody to uh like eucharistic adoration or something Mm -hmm. and it's not to say you shouldn't invite people to both but if someone is been away from the church for a while, it's it's sometimes, for some people, right, easier to kind of come back in a, a way that seems like almost like a little bit more removed, even though it's just as integral, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my parish uh, in New Jersey is helping to sponsor a Colombian refugee family, and people are um, volunteering to take them to the grocery store to help them with their budgeting, to vo- donate clothes, all these sorts of things, give them rides to the doctor's office, and all of these things are really integral to the faith and really integral to that sense of service and to that sense of community. And that ideally, you know, help to draw, draw people together to help someone, but also draw people back into that community.
2: Yeah.
1: So another thing, Carrie, that I found particularly interesting with the survey was that only 10% of women uh, stated that they had experienced sexism within the church. Um, did you find that surprising? Or do you think there's sort of a difference in the way that people can define sexism, I think especially in light of what we're seeing with the Me Too movement and all these scandals.
3: Yeah, I was surprised because anyone I mentioned this stat to was also surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I think one interesting factor that you need to mention about this is that it is the question asked, have you ever personally experienced sexism in the church? Mm-hmm. And I think that personally is very relevant because there are some women who feel like, oh, you know, I, this, that, someone, so-and-so said that you know, pastor is sexist, but he's never done that to me. And and so it doesn't, this question doesn't apply. Or they might feel that there's some sort of structural injustice, but that it doesn't affect them directly. So Mm -hmm. it's not personally applying. Um, And it could be that they just actually have not experienced sexism in the church, which is great. Like ideally it would be 0%. Mm -hmm. Right. So in some ways, 10% is a great number because it seems way less than the population at large. On another sense... 10% of women have been experiencing sexism by a group of uh, believers who are trying to treat each other like they're, you know, uh, they're children of God. That's not great. Mm -hmm. Um, But what is interesting also is that, unfortunately, the numbers tend upward when you kind of take out subgroups of people who have gone to Catholic colleges, people who have gone to Catholic high schools, people who are more involved in parish ministry so the more involved people mm. seem to be mm-hmm. the more likely it is that they would have experienced sexism so to some degree if what your commitment is to the church is or the parish or the institution is is a weekly mass or less than that there are actually very few opportunities to experience personally that mm-hmm. sexism in a, in a sense um that's not a great selling point we're not going to be like come yeah. into the church because for more opportunities <laughs> yeah. for sexism right, right. like that's not the goal Um, it's not what the church is about. So that's,
2: that's the personal side of it. Is there anything in the survey about, you mentioned the more like structural sexism. Um, what did the survey find about how people perceive, um, it more generally the role of women in the church and in decision-making?
3: Yeah. So nine out of 10 women basically say the church, their, their, their local parish, uh, does, a very much or somewhat does a good job of integrating women into the parish community, which is great because women are part of the parish community, (laughs) right? So that, I mean, it's not like a major accomplishment there in a sense, but it is in that we're glad that people feel welcome. And that is part of our goal. When you ask women, you know, do you think the priest does a good job of integrating women into leadership roles or into decision making in the parish, the number goes down. Um, But on the other hand, the number is often higher among people who are actually very involved at the parish, because I think they probably see that more often than people who are less involved. So there might be an element of perception there, like Mm -hmm. people who don't go to mass as often or aren't as involved in a parish perceive that there are no women involved in the leadership or in the decision making roles, whereas the women who are actually present might they might be the ones making those decisions Mm -hmm.
0: i mean like anyone who spends a lot of time in the catholic church knows that like women are keeping it alive on a day-to-day basis like they are you wrote a feature article um which its title was the humble indispensable women leading the catholic church you've probably never heard of right so in some ways this is a i don't know isn't surprising right
3: well one thing that i was surprised me about the data is that a lot of those roles that we see filled by women is actually filled by a, a very small percentage of women. Hmm. So, like, when when we asked, you know, have you participated as a catechist or as a usher, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I think the highest proportion was... um 15%, I think fifteen percent yeah. for uh, people oh, teaching catechism yeah. classes. Again, that I That mean, was it.
2: Anecdote: right? As someone who's on like the Eucharistic Minister and lector list for my parish, like there aren't that many
3: people. It's all the same. You get people. scheduled week after
2: week But I
3: mean, it is mostly women. But. Yeah, and it's <laughs> great, and I'm glad that they're visible. I'm yeah. glad that's important. But like, as a percentage of the whole, you, I think mm-hmm. you would want like more people involved in some of those and
0: things. that's not because that's not a sustainable
3: model right uh having like 10 catholic women yes. run every parish everywhere <laughs> yes. no i don't think so <laughs> oh, no, no, no. They're, they're pretty, they're pretty feisty yeah, yeah i was just saying, put my <laughs> that's money that's not bad but like no right you need who are they going to minister to if other people aren't you know involved
0: yeah
1: so carrie one of the things that was also pretty interesting about your piece was how many women kind of shy away from the term Role model? Why do you think that is? And are you a role model?
3: <laughs> I will answer it. Yes, you are. <laughs> so, yeah, it was interesting. When asked where people got their perceptions of Catholic, of what it meant to be like Catholic women from, that it was mostly their friends and family first. Uh, and it, then it was Catholic educators second. So that what it means is that people... Uh, are getting their role models mostly from people that they know, which means that most of us are a role model to somebody possibly without even knowing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's important to remember because if this, if you are where someone is getting their model of the faith from, mm-hmm. that is a responsibility in a sense right. to try to live out your faith in the most authentic way. But I think a lot of times we think of role models as this sort of perfect example of faith. And there is an element of that in like this, in the saints and in, you know, in Mary and all the people that we know of as, as the holy men and women of the church. But I think that it's very useful for us to try to take, remove that sense of perfection from this term role model so that more people feel comfortable, willing to take it on and say, look, yeah, I am a role model. And that means I have a certain responsibility to people in the faith, to, our community to represent our community well, to represent this to each other well. To, it, you know, when I was went to Catholic grammar school in high school, we would have we had uniforms, and they mm-hmm. always said, you know, wherever you are in that uniform, you are representing us. Better not get in trouble at the park in that skirt, <laughs> and like. I cut, and it kind of applies in a similar way. Like, we don't have a uniform can you anymore, change although I really wish. Yeah, you could change clothes right, and get in yeah. trouble. That's okay, fine. Right. Just don't implicate school. <laughs> and, you know, we put on our faith, right? We, mm-hmm. we wear our faith in public in ways that have to be meaningful and useful and helps people. Uh, who are trying to live a similar faith life to you, to have a model to follow, perhaps, or maybe a model not to follow sometimes. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, this is how I screwed up. And then help people learn from that, and that's okay.
0: I really want to dig in on your mistakes.
3: Yeah. If (laughs) if that's all
0: right. I I had a feeling like the whole setup about role models not being perfect was like a way in for you to...
3: Oh, admit, I didn't answer that last question. Yes, yes. The right? last so, so, <laughs> so when I did my article, you know, I was I spoke to these women who were so they were very accomplished professionally in they were very, very strong foundation in their faith. They had been run, you know, they had been academic deans and chancellors and um, spiritual advisors, all these things that to me clearly made them a role model. And mm-hmm. so many of them were like. I guess if i mean i think maybe you could call me that because of the reasons we sort of talked about and uh I was like, oh, they should definitely call themselves role models. And this is why it's important to identify as a role model, like, in my head. And yet I still have this. I'm like, I don't know if I want to say that I'm a role model. I was reading it and I was just thinking of
2: my mom. I was like, my mom would, like, never, ever Mm -hmm. say she was a role model. And she was, like, CFO for Archdiocese of Washington. And so that's why I talk about her as much as I can because (laughs) she she won't won't talk about herself. (laughs) And I don't think, like, my reverse proud parenting is going to be what turns around the church's like uh public image when it comes to women leadership i don't know i
3: kind of think it in a sense it does because i think there are people who think like what who do you you know look up to ashley like there's no one for you to even Mm -hmm. say and you're like no actually here's a bunch of people you may not be aware of and i think that's important i think it's important to raise up other people um and not to force them to have to always Mm -hmm. do it themselves Mm
0: -hmm. all right we have time for our one and last Mm -hmm. final question Yes. Are you would, ready?
3: I'm ready. Are you ready? <laughs> Are, you ready? <laughs> Are you ready? I, I, I hope think so. you know what it's going to be. <laughs> so, Hi.
1: Carrie, if you could canonize anyone, living or dead, Catholic or non-Catholic, who would it be? Woman or man? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, all right, I was—I am ready because I was like, "Oh my gosh, they're going to ask me this question." <laughs> um Catherine mccauley she is the founder of the Sisters of Mercy. uh She lived out. Wait, the I assume she Mer- was a saint already. Right? You would think she's not. <laughs> so, if you need a miracle, pray to okay. her. We're all about it with the Mercy Associates and the Sisters of Mercy. No, she's not yet. um She's on her way, but. She's not yet a saint, and Mm -hmm. she definitely should be. And she loved tea. She loved the works of mercy. She was Irish. Like there's (laughs) all. She's this perfect person. Uh, And I I just, I adore so much of what uh, she is about, and the way in which she lived out her leadership role as well. And so I think she should definitely, definitely be canonized. When I think
0: in your humility, you won't plug your book here, but I feel like. (laughs) I would like to. Um, you're all about mercy, right? Yeah, so, you are. Carrie uh, has a great book um, called Mercy in
3: the City. Well, you're very kind. Um, exactly. Which
2: Lent is coming up, and it mm-hmm. was it was a Lenten project of it's doing true. all of the corporal works of mercy during Lent. So, you guys should all buy the book and then do the. Works There's a blurb on it from Catherine McCauley. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a kickback scheme. Really. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
0: Carrie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank thanks you. so much, I'm really Carrie. Excited to
3: be here. Thanks, Carrie.
2: You can find uh, the study we talked about and all the articles, including Carrie's article, um, in our January 22nd uh, print issue of the magazine. But you can also find it all online at americanmagazine.org forward slash women. All right. Now it's time for some listener feedback. we put out a special request for this episode we're giving away our latest issue which features all the articles about this great survey that America did um, including Carrie's article uh, and a bunch of other really amazing content Um, so we asked our listeners to um, nominate one one woman for canonization Um, so we've picked a couple of the really great answers Mm -hmm. that we got. Zach do you want to that yeah. one out
0: yeah Robert uh, wrote that uh, he would canonize sister Mary mother of merciful love SSVm uh, during college she led campus ministries peace and justice committee she led pro-life Rosaries mentored kids and at the juvenile detention center and cooked meals for the homeless so, so sister Mary
2: that's yeah. awesome uh, the next uh, Canonization comes from John Doherty, who is he's a we is a fan of the show that we met at the Ignatian Family uh, Teach In for Justice. Um, and we met his daughter Rose, who uh, she's doing very well now, but she had a brain tumor and had to go through chemotherapy. And so John, uh, would canonize his wife, Cecilia, who even during that like very difficult time of mm-hmm. being in the ICU and not knowing how her daughter would be, um, he said it was a really difficult time and she didn't miss an opportunity to show love for the people around her. So. That's pretty great. That's really beautiful.
1: Um, Alyssa Roper writes in that she's from Australia and would like to nominate Sister Kathleen Williams, the Sister of Mercy, as the saintliest person she knows. She strongly supports others, especially women and lay people who are doing the same by supervising them. Um, And she says that she receives little attention for the enormous amount of work she puts into her students. So, yeah. Sounds like a lot
2: like the women that Carrie talked about Mm -hmm. in her interview.
0: Uh, So, listeners, thank you for sending these in. Uh, Thank you for paying attention to the women in your life, uh, thank them if you haven't already. Like the people you thought of when we asked this question, let them know. Um, Let them know that they're a role model. Um, That's something that came out of our conversation with Carrie, I think. Yeah.
2: All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach?
0: So this week I have a consolation. I spent uh, this past Monday, Martin Luther King Day, uh, volunteering at a friend's company's service day and i started out the day pretty cynical um just because there was something i I spent the day with kids from the read nyc program um in the united way um so families were brought in um kids were brought in to uh sort of hang out for the day and i thought there was something really i don't know just sort of uncomfortable about like a lot of white people talking to kids of color about martin luther king's legacy and the things that they need to like pay attention to about what he did. Um and so I was like, you know, none of these people like care about structures. They're just fulfilling some like service hour that their company's requiring and I was super cynical. Um and I sort of masked it in like my concern for justice and structures. And so I was not super present. Um but then I got to hang out with um one of the kids and just like spent the day coloring and making arts and crafts. And this little girl told me about how there was this like boy in her class that no one is friends with and like she's gonna resolve to be his friend um Mm -hmm. is like part of the day and it it, so the consolation in this is that i was brought out of my own cynicism my own like self wallowing um by this little girl and and brought into the presence of god Mm -hmm. um and so and it reminded me that i actually don't do enough charity and a lot of times i like mask my concern for justice or structures and i say like you know like i don't need to do this person-to-person contact Mm -hmm. and work um in communion and that's not the case and so i was very consoled by that experience this one's beautiful that's great yeah
1: what about you olga i've also got a consolation this week um so i've mentioned in past episodes that i've been really kind of struggling with being angry at god for various things that i've um been going through my personal life um and i kind of just woke up this week and was just like okay you really have to be proactive about this. Like you can't just wallow in this anger because just like any other relationship, if there's an obstacle, you have to work to kind of get through it, you know? So I'm like, it's okay. Like every week I sit here and talk about faith with you guys. I talk about it with my boyfriend and I'm like, okay, but how do you explore this on your own? Uh, So I reached out to Jim Martin, who has been on our show several times. um, And I was just like, Jim, I'm really interested in like meeting with a spiritual director. What do you recommend? And he put me in contact with a spiritual director and I have my first meeting next week. And that was just really consoling because I, I don't know, I just took the moment to kind of just, I don't know, like pray and kind of have this conversation with God and be like, look, this is how I'm feeling right now, but I need to work through it, you know? And even though like a lot of those, that anxiety and that anger is still there, it felt like, okay, I'm being proactive about this. And it was really consoling to know that I'm working on sort of my relationship with God and taking this step forward. Um, And it's been really consoling after all the weeks that I've had as well, so...
0: That's great. Good on you. I, I do want to like say, I think that's amazing. I think that's a big step that a lot of people are afraid to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're listening and you're like, I've always wanted a spiritual director, but I've been afraid or awkward or weird. Right. Like, whenever I talk to priests, that's their favorite thing that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't think that your priest is too busy for that, I would
1: say. Yeah. And I think also personally, I was like, it's okay to realize that you need guidance from someone other than mm-hmm. yourself to help you in this moment. Like, It's okay to feel like, I'm feeling so negative and I can't do this by my on my own, you mm-hmm. know, and to kind of just reach out there and know that there are people there. So Amen. That's great. So Actually, what do you, what got? you got?
2: I have a consolation too. This is Wow. This is good. <laughs> um so this is a, it, full disclosure, I'm talking about something that happened two weekends ago, but it was so consoling and the consolation has stayed with me, so I'm gonna bring it up again. Right. <laughs> um so I've had a feature article due for America on February 1st, but I've, it's, I've been working on it since, like, October, November. Mm-hmm. And by working on it, I mean not working on it <laughs> and just having it hang over my head and just building up this, like, anxiety about it. And I've always had anxiety about writing. Um, I just, like, put this, like, moral weight on it that makes actually getting words on the page, like, this feel like this huge task that I just like can't do and I get so nervous about. Um, and then on that, I had sat down on a Saturday morning and I was just like i I need to I need to get through this somehow. Like I have to write something. The <laughs> deadline is coming. And I was able to do that by really just like not making it about me, like writing, I think, we can all agree can sometimes be a very like self-centered endeavor where Mm -hmm. you're just like, this is about me. This is about me coming off as smart or informed or well, like very poetic or whatever. Um, And I was finally like, this isn't about me. There are these people that I've interviewed and I really want to tell their story. Um, And once I made it about participating in the act of creation, instead of like, just like being like, you know, the creator, because it really, I really was like seeing myself as like the creator of whatever this article or the god in this situation, instead of just being someone participating and helping other people by telling their stories. And then once that weight was off my shoulder, I could actually just like write, and I wrote like three thousand words, and it was great. Um, and so I'm like trying to like stay in that mindset because. Uh, writing is technically a large part of my job So I should probably not <laughs> Be so afraid of doing it mm-hmm. um, So that was consulting, Just like seeing the my right place In this, this uh, Hierarchy of creation So yeah
0: Amen <laughs> I, I admit my one takeaway is you saying that it was due in early February And you were freaking out about the deadline two <laughs> weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, I, I sort of lost No, I'm
2: kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. no that's true
0: <laughs> All right, let's wrap.
2: All right. Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit Formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Engineering by Angelo Jesus Conte. Our logo is by Sean Tripoli. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review.
0: Yes, please. Please, please, please. please.
2: How many times (laughs) do we have to say please?
0: Spread the love.
2: No, it really does uh, help us, you know, move up in those rankings, those mysterious Apple (laughs) rankings of podcasts. (laughs) Um, So that would be great. Shout out this week to Foggy Dell and GGTG... Point three. Another benefit, if, you get to make me say ridiculous words when you leave a review. But
0: it is fine <laughs> if we're number one in your hearts, but we really want to be number yeah. one in the charts.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis and Olga Segura. We will see you next week.